This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains descriptions of physical assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On February 5, 2007, officers Tim Ryan and Wendell Reeve arrived at a toll booth in Orlando, Florida to find Colleen Shipman red-eyed and shaking. She'd told them she'd been attacked in the airport parking lot. A woman with black hair wearing an oversized trench coat had pepper sprayed her in the face before trying to steal her car. Colleen had gotten away by the skin of her teeth. With that description in hand, Officer Reeve went to scope out the lot. He was skeptical that the suspect would still be hanging around. But then he saw a slight woman throwing a plastic bag and a black item into the trash. Officer Reeve approached the woman and asked for her ID. As she dug through her duffel, he saw inside a crumpled trench coat. After Colleen identified the woman as the person who attacked her, Officer Reeve handcuffed her and took her to the Orlando police station. As he did so, he couldn't help but think that the diminutive woman didn't look like a criminal. His surprise increased when he ran her ID. The suspect was none other than Lisa Marie Nowak, an active flight duty astronaut at NASA. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on Lisa Nowak. Last week, we discussed Lisa's determination to become an astronaut. We explored how her perfectionism, grief, and overwork potentially led to the destabilization of her mental state. This week, we'll follow Lisa's extramarital affair with fellow astronaut Bill Opheline. Then we'll explore what led her to drive 900 miles to assault a romantic rival. Finally, we'll delve into the ruinous aftermath of Lisa's fateful drive. In early 2003, 40-year-old Lisa Marie Nowak was at rock bottom. For decades, she'd worked tirelessly to achieve one goal, becoming an astronaut, all while taking care of her husband and three young children. Just as she was about to go into space, tragedy struck. In February 2003, the Columbia shuttle exploded on its trip back to Earth. All seven astronauts on board were killed. Three were Lisa's close friends. She was devastated. The explosion also put Lisa's dreams on hold. She was slated to go up in less than a year, but now NASA had postponed all future launches indefinitely. Lisa was uncertain she'd ever get to go to space. All her work might have been for nothing. It was into this darkness that 38-year-old Bill Opheline reappeared like a bolt of lightning. Lisa had met Bill in 1996 on a routine naval assignment. Their first meeting was uneventful, and that made sense because back then, Lisa was happy. She hadn't needed Bill in 1996, but in 2003, mired in tragedy and hopelessness, Lisa was likely feeling vulnerable. This is possibly why she latched on to Bill when he transferred to the Johnson Space Center. A friendship soon blossomed. In addition to both being astronauts, the two had a lot in common. They had both been married for 15 years. Bill also had young children at home, two to Lisa's three, and both were still waiting for their chance to go to space. Perhaps it was this last factor, the specter of dreams unfulfilled, that bonded them. Whatever it was, as they worked in close proximity at the Space Center, the two grew closer. Soon, friendship was not enough. In January 2004, according to Diane Fanning's book, Out There, Lisa and Bill attended a NASA training expedition in Canada. By the time they left their wintry outpost, their relationship had blossomed into a sexual affair. The stakes were dangerous. Not only did they have to hide the affair from their spouses at home, but from their co-workers at NASA. Lisa's willingness to risk her marriage and the respect of her co-workers for an extramarital affair was completely uncharacteristic of her. We can only assume that her feelings about Bill were so strong that she just couldn't stop herself. Another factor that might have affected Lisa's decision was stress. 
Before we continue with Lisa's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. A study conducted by clinical psychologists Stephanie E. Wem and Edelgard Wolfert shows that stress has a negative effect on decision-making. They concluded, the emotion was found to cause people to make riskier, less advantageous choices that fail to account for the full range of possible consequences. Due to the stress she was under, Lisa might not have been equipped to consider the consequences of her affair. But just because she didn't consider them doesn't mean there weren't any. A couple months after Bill returned from Canada, his wife, Michaela, began to notice that he was acting distant. She repeatedly asked if anything was wrong. Again and again, Bill lied. He said that everything was fine. Then, one day in late 2004, Michaela stumbled upon emails between her husband and Lisa Nowak. The messages suggested an intimate relationship between the two. Michaela confronted Bill, demanding that he explain himself. Bill's response was cold. He told her that he was sorry she'd seen the emails. He believed he had deleted them. He offered no apologies beyond that. Michaela filed for divorce in February 2005. Shortly after, Bill moved out of the family home and into a small apartment. He wasted no time in providing Lisa with a key. By early 2005, Lisa was putting Bill's key to good use. Her visits to his new apartment were so frequent, Bill's neighbors believed Lisa was his girlfriend. They had no idea that she was still married, and Lisa's husband, Rich, was similarly unaware. This arrangement soon began to chafe at Bill. According to Fanning, he grew resentful that his marriage had ended while Lisa's proceeded on with barely a ripple. He began pressuring Lisa to leave her husband, to be with him properly. Lisa refused, and she had a good reason that even Bill couldn't argue with. NASA had solved the issues that caused the Columbia explosion. This meant that finally, Lisa's shuttle launch was back on the books. She didn't have time to navigate a divorce. She was going to space. In mid-2006, Lisa was excited for her impending launch. However, her elation was tinged with fear. She turned to Jonathan Clark. The two had grown close when Lisa helped him and his children in the aftermath of his wife's death in the Columbia explosion. Lisa confided in him, I'm worried. Am I going to leave my family in the same situation that happened with Columbia? Jonathan reassured her everything would be okay. Lisa took his words to heart. If John still believed in the space program after all he'd been through, she could too. Shortly after, NASA set Lisa's launch date for July 1st, 2006. Several technical issues delayed the flight, but on the 4th of July, NASA gave the green light. After weeks of preparation, days in pre-launch quarantine, and a lifetime of hard work, 43-year-old Lisa was finally going to space. At 11.42 a.m., Lisa strapped herself into her seat on the shuttle. 
Sitting atop almost four million pounds of explosive rocket fuel, she was living her dream. Her family couldn't say the same. For her parents, her husband Rich, and her three children, the Columbia and Challenger disasters likely loomed large in their minds as they awaited Lisa's takeoff. There was another person watching that day, Bill Opheline. His relationship with Lisa had continued to grow. He was excited for her, maybe even a little jealous. His own first launch wouldn't be for another couple of months. Then everyone snapped to attention at the sound of an almighty boom. The rocket launchers engaged and Lisa's shuttle took off. As the craft shot up into the sky, Lisa was likely euphoric. There would never be another 4th of July like this one, not for as long as she lived. As the shuttle left the Earth's orbit, Lisa could feel the weight of gravity vanish. As all that earthbound heaviness fell away, she felt lighter, free. Lisa unclipped her seatbelt, and then she floated. Up next, Lisa returns to Earth, and her relationship with Bill begins to fray. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. On the 4th of July, 2006... 43-year-old Lisa Marie Nowak was finally in outer space. However, her body was unaccustomed to zero gravity, causing her to experience space sickness for the first time. Fortunately, Lisa was accustomed to performing despite any bodily discomforts. All the astronauts were. Nauseous and disoriented, she did her duty as the shuttle's flight engineer, helping to coordinate details as needed. The main purpose of the mission was to deliver supplies and equipment to the International Space Station. Lisa and fellow astronaut Stephanie Wilson wielded a large robotic arm from inside the shuttle to deliver the payload. The endeavor required focus and skill. Lisa and Stephanie pulled it off masterfully. Though Lisa did a great job fulfilling her tasks, she refused to help any of the crew with theirs. She was still a perfectionist. She wouldn't perform any task for which she hadn't specifically trained. 
Lisa likely considered this the responsible thing to do. As a bonus, it also gave her time to take in the wonder of space. The most amazing of these wonders was the view of the Earth from her shuttle window. Every experience Lisa ever had was housed within that tiny blue dot. The sight of it from her great height must have taken Lisa's breath away. Unfortunately, the view from her shuttle was the best one she was going to get. The male astronauts were able to leave the shuttle to go on a spacewalk, but Lisa and Stephanie could not because NASA didn't consider it a priority to order spacesuits that were small enough for women. It seemed Lisa could escape the Earth's orbit, but not its biases. Regardless, Lisa was likely grateful to have gotten an opportunity that very few would ever know. After 12 days, 18 hours, and 37 minutes, the trip she'd prepared for her entire life came to an end. Lisa strapped herself back into her seat and got ready to return to Earth. On July 17, 2006, the STS-121 crew landed safely. Lisa's family was waiting for her as she stepped off the shuttle, relieved and excited. They cheered her on like a hero. The celebration continued when the Nowak family arrived at their home in Clear Lake City. Diane Fanning wrote, Neighbors poured out of their houses to let Lisa know how proud they were of her and how glad they were that she was back. Then NASA sent Lisa on a press trip to her hometown in Maryland. There, she visited her old elementary, middle, and high schools. At each, Lisa gamely answered the questions of the eager students who marveled at her. But on the inside, she knew what was ahead of her, normal life. A few months later, all the champagne had been drunk, the lights of the press tour had dimmed, and the victory speeches were over. Lisa went back to being a wife, mother, and astronaut who might never again go to space. It was a staggering change. Lisa was likely experiencing an emotional state that famed astronaut Buzz Aldrin called the melancholy of things done. Aldrin used this phrase to describe the depression he experienced upon returning home from the moon. Psychologists suggest that his post-achievement malaise wasn't out of the ordinary. In an article for the Harvard Business Review, psychologist Ron Friedman writes, high-stress situations and the adrenaline rush they produce can be addictive, but when the sense of urgency halts, people tend to experience withdrawal. There was another thing on Lisa's mind. President Bush had made the decision that the space shuttle design was outdated. Its construction posed too many risks. Space missions would cease in 2010 while they designed a new shuttle. Lisa knew there were a lot of other astronauts who had a skill set similar to hers. She wasn't sure if she'd get the chance to return to space before the shuttle program was shut down in four years. The idea her career might already be over terrified her, and on top of this was her steadily deteriorating marriage. 
Lisa's husband, Rich, was exhausted. According to Fanning, for long periods of her training and throughout her flight, he'd assumed the role of single parent to their three children. When she returned, he wanted and deserved a break. It's unclear exactly how Lisa and Rich worked through their private grievances. However, in November of 2006, their neighbors heard the sound of shattering objects coming from their home. Facing the degeneration of her marriage, the mundanity of normal life, and the prospect that she might never return to space, Lisa focused even more on her affair with Bill. But something was wrong. Lisa's relationship with Bill was off. She would call him, and it would be days before he called her back. And sometimes, Bill didn't call at all. Lisa could feel that something had changed, but she couldn't imagine what it could be. It turned out to be Colleen Shipman. Bright, blonde, and 14 years younger than Lisa, Colleen was a captain in the U.S. Air Force. Bill met the vivacious 30-year-old in November 2006 at a party that NASA threw for local military officials. The two got to talking, and according to Fanning, the attraction was instantaneous. They kept in touch after that first meeting. A month later, Colleen flew to Houston to visit Bill. He was supposed to launch in December 2006, and the two wanted to spend time together before he went into his pre-launch quarantine. During her visit, Bill told her about his relationship with Lisa, but he also told Colleen that it was all in the past. The two had amicably ended things. Colleen took the information in stride. She wasn't worried. Then she took a charm off of her bracelet and asked Bill to take it to space with him. He could give it back to her when he returned to Earth safe and whole. Bill took the charm and promised to do as she asked. But unbeknownst to Colleen, he hadn't broken things off with Lisa, not in the slightest. In fact, as far as Lisa knew, her and Bill's relationship was still on track. She had no idea that Bill had started seeing Colleen at all. Instead, she chalked up her difficulty getting him on the phone to his impending launch. In addition to Bill's radio silence, Lisa also had to contend with some horrible news of her own. She had just found out that an open slot on a space shuttle had gone to her fellow female astronaut, Stephanie Wilson, instead of to her. On inquiring why, Lisa was told Stephanie was picked because she was a team player and well-deserving. Lisa's unwillingness to assist with any duties outside the ones she'd trained for had not gone unnoticed by the higher-ups. Now, Lisa likely felt that she was being punished, her last opportunity to go back to space taken away from her. This loss made Bill's emotional distance that much more nerve-wracking. Nevertheless, Lisa told herself that once Bill's shuttle trip ended, he'd have more time. Their relationship would go back to the way it was. Lisa was wrong. Bill's shuttle took off into space on December 9, 2006. And the entire time he was in orbit, he exchanged steamy emails with Colleen. 
One such message from Colleen read, I'll have to control myself when I see you. First urge will be to rip your clothes off, throw you on the ground, and love the hell out of you. I'm anxious to get you alone. In response, Bill took pictures of himself holding Colleen's charm inside the space shuttle. Maybe he did so to show her that he might not be a man of many words, but he would always keep his word, at least when it came to her. Bill landed back on Earth at 4.32 p.m. on December 22, 2006. Shortly after, Lisa called and left him a message. Bill returned her call after an hour, but he stayed on the phone with her for less than a minute. Moments after they hung up, Lisa sent him a text message. Bill didn't reply. Instead, he took Colleen to a special welcome-home dinner that had been arranged for the returning astronauts. Colleen took the invitation as a promising sign. Again, she asked Bill if they were exclusive. And for the second time, Bill lied. He told her that he had ended things with Lisa. He even said that Lisa took the news well and that she was happy for him. Wanting to make certain, Colleen asked, are you sure she's okay with this? Is there going to be some crazy lady showing up at my door trying to kill me? Bill laughed, assuring Colleen that Lisa wasn't like that. His response set Colleen's heart at ease. She soon took Bill home to meet her family. Her sister pronounced him a fantastic guy. Lisa apparently thought so too. She separated from her husband, Rich, in January 2007, mere weeks after Bill's return. Rich moved out of their home. Shortly after his departure, Lisa wrote Bill's mother a letter. In it, she said, Bill is absolutely the best person I've ever known, and I love him more than I knew possible. My past situation is finally coming to a close with formal separation and separate living arrangements accomplished, and I'm in the process of completing all the official divorce paperwork. I'm very much looking forward to getting to know you even better. With the letter posted and Rich now in a separate apartment, Lisa likely assumed that nothing else stood in the way of her relationship with Bill. Then, a few weeks later, Bill invited Lisa to work out with him in the NASA gym. There, Bill told her that he had fallen in love with a woman named Colleen Shipman. He intended to see Colleen exclusively. That meant that he and Lisa could no longer date. To Bill, Lisa seemed fine upon hearing the news. A little disappointed, but no more than that. She even told him she was happy for him, and she just wanted to remain friends. Bill assured her that they would remain friends, good friends. Once unencumbered, Bill bounded off and placed a framed picture of Colleen on his desk at the Johnson Space Center. A few days later, on January 20th, he booked a plane ticket for Colleen to visit him in Houston. Three days after that, when Bill was in a meeting at the Space Center, Lisa let herself into his apartment with the key he had given her in better times. Once inside, she pulled a sheet of Bill's passwords out of her pocket and hacked into his email account. 
Then Lisa systematically printed out his entire correspondence with Colleen. As she read their ardent proclamations of love, Lisa began deliberating about the appropriate strategic response. Up next, Lisa lays a trap for her romantic rival, Colleen Shipman. Now the conclusion to the story. The day after 43-year-old Lisa Nowak broke into the apartment of her ex-lover, Bill Opheline, an oblivious Bill asked her to lunch. He was dedicated to remaining friends with her like he'd promised. During lunch, Lisa's behavior was normal. Nothing in her conduct hinted at the simmering thoughts inside her head. The day before, in Bill's apartment, she had seen a round-trip ticket for Colleen to visit him in Houston before returning back to her home in Florida. This meant Lisa knew the exact time that Colleen would land in Florida. She also knew that Colleen would be alone. Lisa betrayed none of these thoughts as she sat with Bill, smiling and listening to him talk. But despite her placid demeanor, Lisa's mind kept tick-tick-ticking away, and slowly a plan began to take shape. The plan was simple. She would beat Colleen to Florida and await her arrival at the airport. Then she would confront the other woman. Once Lisa had the basics of her plan down, she honed in on the details, utilizing the same single-minded focus that had served her all her life. First, she arranged to take three days off of her job at NASA. Then, with maps and exhaustive notes, Lisa painstakingly mapped out the 900-mile journey from Houston to Orlando. Next, she gathered together a veritable trove of interesting items. One two-pound drilling hammer, one black buck knife, several feet of rubber tubing, one BB gun, a canister of pepper spray, latex gloves, and plastic bags. Finally, Lisa purchased a black curly wig, a trench coat, and a pair of astronaut diapers. Her schedule was plotted down to the minute. There would be no time for bathroom breaks. Once everything was in place, every contingency accounted for, Lisa got into her car and started the long drive from Houston to Orlando. Bill and Colleen were completely ignorant of Lisa's plans. Colleen had arrived in Houston from Florida as planned, and the two were having a romantic weekend reconnecting with each other. The only hiccup came when Colleen noticed a purple bicycle in Bill's garage. Bill sheepishly admitted that the bike belonged to Lisa. Colleen was upset. She told Bill she wouldn't demand he remove the bike, but that its presence made her question his commitment to her. Bill promised to get rid of the bike immediately. Colleen accepted his assurances. However, her hackles were raised once more that night when Bill accidentally called her Lisa in bed. Colleen flinched, likely wondering if the specter of Lisa Nowak would haunt her relationship with Bill forever. She needn't have worried. Lisa wouldn't remain a ghostly presence for much longer. 
On February 5, 2007, after driving over 900 miles, 43-year-old Lisa finally arrived in Orlando, Florida. After checking into a local inn, she hopped into a shuttle and headed for the airport. Lisa arrived at the airport at half past midnight. She was right on schedule. In half an hour, Colleen's plane would touch down in Orlando, and Lisa would finally get the chance to confront her for the very first time. Lisa wore a hat over a wig and large red-rimmed sunglasses as she waited at the airport's baggage claim. Her over-the-top incognito outfit looked ridiculous. But when Colleen appeared at 1.22 in the morning, she was too tired to notice. As Lisa watched, an airline official told Colleen that her bag hadn't made it onto the plane. She would have to wait a couple more hours until it arrived. Exhausted, Colleen opted to wait. With a $12 food and drink voucher provided by the airport, she bought a hot chocolate from Starbucks. After finishing it, she settled down in an airport seat to doze. Lisa waited out of sight, watching her sleep. After an hour, Colleen checked the baggage claim once more and was relieved to find her suitcase had arrived. Grabbing it, she walked outside, unaware that Lisa was close behind her. Lisa followed Colleen onto the airport shuttle. She got off when Colleen got off. Then she tailed her through the parking lot. Finally, Colleen became aware of the strangely dressed woman in the sunglasses and oversized trench coat following her. Nervous, she picked up her pace. She was alarmed when the footsteps behind her increased in speed as well. Colleen walked even faster. She felt a surge of relief when she finally reached her car. She slipped inside, but before she could drive, there was a banging on her window. The strange woman was at her door, her narrow face peering in through the window. She rattled her door handle, trying to get inside. Colleen jabbed her key into the ignition, desperate to drive away. And then the woman asked Colleen to help her. She said her boyfriend was supposed to have picked her up, but he wasn't there. She needed a ride to the parking office. Colleen refused, offering to go get someone instead. And then the woman began to cry, begging Colleen to roll down her window. Colleen's empathy kicked in. She rolled her window down. That was all the opening Lisa needed. Reaching inside, she pepper-sprayed Colleen in the face. Despite the pepper spray obscuring her vision, Colleen's hand shot out, reaching for the ignition. Then, blind, she started her car and careened out of the parking lot. As Lisa watched Colleen's car grow smaller in the distance, she knew she'd made a mistake. In all her planning, she had failed to account for one thing. Where she was measured, detailed, and precise, Colleen was fast, able to act on instinct and pure adrenaline. There were no contingencies for this outcome. The wheels had come off the cart, and this thing Lisa had started, she had no idea how it would end. The beginning of the end started with Colleen placing a call to the police. 
After describing the woman who had attacked her, Officer Wendell Reeves circled back to the airport parking lot. There, he saw Lisa throw away a white plastic bag and a loaded BB gun. After determining she was the suspect, Officer Reeves took her to the Orlando police station for questioning. At the station, Reeve was stunned to find out that the woman who attacked Colleen was an astronaut at NASA. After discovering what many would label a murder and dismemberment kit inside Lisa's duffel bag, Reeve brought in Detective Chris Becton to join the investigation team. The detective arrived at the Orlando police station at 4.45 a.m. and went in to talk to Lisa. From their discussion, he learned that Lisa had been in a relationship with Bill Ophelein, Colleen Shipman's current boyfriend. Lisa admitted that she traveled to Orlando to speak with Colleen. However, she insisted that despite appearances, she wasn't trying to hurt Colleen. Becton looked at the BB gun, the buck knife, and Lisa's elaborate disguise with barely concealed skepticism. Lisa said that she only brought the BB gun to scare Colleen into talking to her. However, she had no explanation for the plastic bag and the latex gloves. And when Becton asked her about the two used astronaut diapers that had been unearthed from her trunk, Lisa shrugged. She admitted that she'd worn them in the car so she wouldn't have to stop to urinate. Having gotten all the information he could, Becton placed Lisa under arrest for attempted kidnapping, attempted vehicle burglary with battery, destruction of evidence, and battery. And just like that, Lisa went from a revered astronaut to an inmate at the Orlando County Jail. Upon learning the truth about Lisa's identity and about the weapons she had on her person, Colleen began to suspect that she'd narrowly escaped an attempt on her life. When she told Bill what had transpired, he was equally shocked. Nothing about the night Colleen described sounded at all like the Lisa he knew. However, on being questioned by the police about the very same details, Bill had to admit that maybe he didn't know Lisa at all. As Colleen and Bill reeled with horror, the press caught wind of the story. Needless to say, their reaction to the night's events was very different. On hearing the tale of a jilted astronaut driving 900 miles in diapers, all to attack a romantic rival, the press could barely contain their glee. Everybody liked a hero, but what people really loved was a fallen hero, someone who had stumbled off their pedestal and into the muck with everyone else. Lisa's story provided this form of schadenfreude in spades. According to author Diane Fanning, everyone from bloggers to Jay Leno made diaper jokes at her expense. Astrologers pontificated on the narcissism in her natal chart, Tabloids had a heyday with outrageous headlines like Lust in Space, Astronaut, and Astronauts Gone Wild. And yet, Lisa wasn't without her supporters. Laurel Clark's widower, John, came out in her defense, saying, 
What happened in the last few days was a shock, but Lisa is a wonderful, good, caring person. In a separate interview, John Harrington, one of Lisa's astronaut classmates, seemed to second the sentiments, saying, Lisa was a dedicated, hardworking person. Unfortunately, the attention surrounding her right now minimizes that. Despite the seemingly disparate reactions of Lisa's supporters and detractors, the two groups had one thing in common. They both wondered why Lisa, an accomplished, intelligent woman, would do something so bizarre. But could Lisa's behavior actually be classified as bizarre? An analysis of her recent history suggested otherwise. Three years before Lisa broke into Bill's apartment, she watched her friends die in the gruesome Columbia explosion. A couple months before she took her ill-fated drive, she received the news that she likely would never get another chance to go back to space. The development was akin to hearing that her best career years were already behind her, at 43. A few weeks before she pepper-sprayed Colleen in the face, the last bright spot in her life seemed to blink out. Bill broke up with her. This as she stood amidst the wreckage of her crumbled marriage and her thwarted dreams. Had Lisa wanted to get help to deal with the mental strain of these events, she might have found it difficult to ask for it. NASA astronauts had a strong incentive to hide any psychological problems. They knew that drawing attention to a need for mental health support might count as a red mark against them, preventing them from being considered for future space missions. It's obvious, then, why Lisa might have felt pressured to keep her trauma to herself. In addition, Lisa's violent actions could have been fueled in part by her strong, obsessive feelings for Bill. In an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, a forensic psychologist said about Lisa, it's entirely possible that anyone who spoke to her on any topic other than her relationship with Opheline might have found her to be utterly normal. That's the obsessive part of it. Emotion overrides logic. In light of all that, while Lisa's actions could be called cruel, ill-thought-out, and criminal, they weren't bizarre. On the contrary, an analysis of the events leading up to the attack suggests that Lisa's outburst was almost inevitable. On February 6, 2007, the same day she was arrested, Lisa attended her arraignment. According to a New York Times article written by John Schwartz, two of her fellow astronauts, the chief of NASA's astronaut office, Colonel Stephen W. Lindsay, and Captain Christopher J. Ferguson of the Navy, were there to offer support. Alongside Lisa, they listened as the judge increased her bail from $15,000 to $25,000. The increase was due to the fact that the police had added attempted murder to her charges. In addition, Lisa learned that Colleen had filed a protective order against her. After posting bail, Lisa was served with yet another indignity. She was fitted with an electronic ankle bracelet so her every move could be monitored. When she returned home to her suburban Texas neighborhood, Lisa's neighbors stayed shuttered inside their houses. 
this reception must have been a stark contrast to her hero's welcome just six months prior. It communicated an unavoidable truth, that with one vicious act, she had dismantled a lifetime of goodwill and achievement. There would be no more nuance allowed for Lisa Nowak. From now on, her years excelling in a male-dominated field while balancing home and family wouldn't matter. No, she would forever be defined by the worst thing she'd ever done. With that heavy on her shoulders, Lisa walked into her house and shut the door. On November 10, 2009, 46-year-old Lisa accepted a plea deal and pled guilty to charges of felony burglary of a car and misdemeanor battery. According to a CNN article by John Coles, she was given credit for the two days she served in jail and sentenced to a year of probation. She was also ordered to perform 50 hours of community service and to send Colleen Shipman an official letter of apology. She also apologized to Colleen in court, stating, I am sincerely sorry for causing fear, misunderstanding, and all of the intense public exposure you've suffered. Despite this apology, Colleen remained traumatized by the event. This caused her to appreciate Bill's consistent support throughout. And in 2010, Colleen and Bill were married. As for Lisa, the ramifications of her actions weren't restricted to the legal sphere. She was discharged from the Navy and publicly dismissed from NASA. Today, Lisa lives in Texas and works in the private sector. After she attacked Colleen, NASA began reviewing its procedures for addressing the mental health of its astronauts. Regardless of what new processes they put in place, Lisa will never go back to space again. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Lisa Nowak, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Out There by Diane Fanning extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Abiyageli Ademegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 